So this is the first in a series of 10 weeks where we'll be going through the book of Judges. Today, we're going to look briefly at the background of the book as a whole, kind of set a context for all these things we're going to talk about, and then we'll talk specifically about two judges in chapter three. Um, but first, let's do a bit of a background. Let's talk about some of the bigger themes that Judges kind of talks about. First off, the title, Judges. We think a judge is someone who is like in a courtroom and has a, a gavel or has a wig or whatever the thing might be, whatever culture you're from. Um, but that's not really what we see here in this book. In fact, the word judge probably is best described as like a warlord, like a tribal leader. It's a weird combination, like tribal leader um, and like in our context, like a, an elder or church leader. And then also when going over, see dealing with um, nations outside of Israel, that is more where the judge kind of adjudicating kind of thing comes in. Um, so it's a weird combination of things, but as you'll see, there's not a lot of judging and there's a lot of killing. So warlords is kind of more of the term. Warriors is what we, get, we should think of these people. Not many judges of our day would be classified as a warlord, and that's a good thing. This book itself, so Judges kind of starts, it gives a bit of a history, it gives a context. Uh, but before we kind of get into that, I'll just give you a quick, a, beat, a brief background here. So the Israelites, years before this book of Judges, years before these stories, the Israelites were slaves to Egypt. They were enslaved, marginalized people. They were without a homeland of their own. They were used for their labor by the Egyptians to build stuff. And God set them free under the leadership of Moses. Uh, after they were set free from the, uh, the Egyptians, set free to worship God, they wandered around in the desert for a really long time, and they came into the land that God had given them under Joshua's leadership. So Moses led them out of Egypt. Joshua is the one who led Israel into the promised land, the land that God had promised his people. God gave them a home. He gave people who were formerly slaves without a home, uh, their home were cell blocks. He gave them a home of their own. And God, he, he was their God, and they were his people. And it was supposed to be something very good. God delivered them, and he also gave them a way to live. Like if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, this is an aspect of, of how to live lives aligned with God. Because God's like, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to give you freedom, but I want you to keep in that freedom. And here's how to keep with that freedom, is to listen to how I'm going to tell you how to live. This was for their good. They should have been set up for a deep, loving relationship, generations long, like millennia long kind of situation It should have, with the Lord. It should have had a great relationship with the Lord after this. Their spiritual lives could have made progress towards God, but that's not what we see happen. Because what we see in Judges is spiritual self-sabotage, sabotaged spirituality. All the elements were there. And they even had stories of, of God's deliverance and, ex and experienced God's deliverance, and yet they still found a way to sabotage their spiritual lives. The Israelites over and over and over again sabotage their spiritual lives, and they're the worse off for it. So Judges is the story of God's people who are supposed to act in the way that God has told them. God's people becoming, slowly becoming, just like everyone else. So becoming indistinguishable from the other nations around them. And of course, we find that's our struggle as well in contemporary society. Doesn't matter how long ago this is written, we have the same issues, us in the church, us in our own lives. For those who follow Jesus, he's done amazing things in our lives. And yet every morning, Every day, we're tempted, we're beckoned, we're called to become just like everyone around us. 
And we think we're the worse off for not becoming like other people. See, so we think we're missing out. This is true in how we spend our money. This is true in how we spend our time. This is true on how we view sex, how we view power, how we view strength, all the stories that we're going to get to in Judges. Uh, all of us want to do what's right in our own eyes. But the story of Judges says that that leads to chaos, at least to horror, that at least to death. Not living how God has told us to live sets us up for failure. And we all live with a sabotage spirituality. So the first step in this is to realize that's true of us, to realize that we don't have it together, that we all are kind of clamoring uh, and stumbling towards faith together, and that we need to cry out to God. We need to cry out to Him. We need to know that relying on ourselves leads us down some really dark paths. And these stories are dark. These stories are obscene even, especially some of the later ones. They, they get really grisly. By ourselves, we are prone to disobedience, and that leads to defeat. But God's path leads to peace, because that's what God is about. He's giving his people rest. And who couldn't use rest right now? Wherever we are, when we cry out to God, he, re he rescues us. Wherever we've come from, whether you feel like you're close to God, whether you think you're too far off for him, from him, when you cry out to God, he rescues you. He gives you a deliverer. And so two main sentences, we're going to stick with this. One is like the background of Judges, and that is God's path leads to peace and disobedience leads to defeat. That's the story of Judges. And this particular story of these two Judges here, Othniel and, and Ehud, uh, teach us this. Wherever we are, when we cry out to God, he rescues us. When we cry out to God, he rescues us. Let's start with that first thing. God's path leads to peace disobedience leads to defeat. There's a bit of an overview of the whole book here. So let's look at um, chapter two. And chapter two is all kind of lead up to the scripture that, we're, that we've read this morning. Um, and it sets the context for the book. Right in the beginning of chapter two, verses one and two say this, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your, to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. This is how the book starts. Not a great beginning. And this is uh, will, will give us context. God here is making it clean, clear, right? He, he doesn't muddle around. He doesn't like give us kind of mysterious ways of how to follow him. He's actually quite clear. The problem is we don't want to listen and we don't want to follow through. So what does this disobedience lead to? Because the people of God have been disobedient, yet God has been so good to them. What does this disobedience lead to? Well, Judges gives us a history. In this book, uh, it, it doesn't come out of, of nowhere. So let's look at uh, chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 23. And if you have these uh, Judges books, they are in, um, I think it's page 8 is where it begins. So chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. So you got to read the lot. After that, whole generation have been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up, knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baal. The Baal. So the Baals are like other um, Canaanite uh, surrounding nations' gods. 
They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherah. And Asherah is another kind of fertility god. Had a lot to do with like sex and temples and things like that. It's a very easy thing to win people to your religion if part of worshipping your god is having sex with like priests and priestesses. Like that's an easy way to live to win people over to your religion. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into your hands, into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Remember, disobedience leads to defeat. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them, use these other nations that are kind of warring against Israel. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Basis tough love that's going talking about here. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So that gives you a bit of the background here. So disobedience is basically another way of saying of not walking in the ways that God has told us to. That's what disobedience is. And that leads to defeat. When we disobey, we are sabotaging ourselves. We think we're getting something good for ourselves. We're not. We're setting ourselves up for failure. Now, we don't think that in the moment, right? That's why we do the things that we want to do. Everybody does what they really want to do. But what we're doing um, is... What what we need to know is that obeying God actually leads to a better life. You may not feel like it in the moment, but that's the truth. Disobeying God leads to a lesser life. So now Israel has these outside nations against them, set against them. They don't like these newcomer Israelites, and they wanted, and Israel at the same time, warring against these people, they wanted to be like these people. And so now these outside nations are kind of set against them, and God is going to use them to test Israel. He's like, well, I delivered you, and you didn't follow me. Maybe if you have a little bit of trouble in your life that you deserve, that you brought upon yourself, maybe then you'll cry out and follow me. Like, basically, God is, is trying to work with his people because he's compassionate and patient, slow to anger. Work with his people to bring him into his into um, relationship with him. So these outside nations, they're a test. And the same is true for us today. The same is true for us today. We have temptations to become just like everyone else around us, to have the same view of success, of power, of sex, whatever the thing might be of the people around us. But that path is setting ourselves up for failure. Disobedience leads to defeat. But if God is patient, even his, with his bride, who, as the book of Judges says, God has married somebody and that somebody has prostituted themselves out, not just to one other God, but all sorts of other gods. They've prostituted herself, even though that's going on. 
God is still trying to draw his people out, to draw him to himself. God's path leads to peace. So if we look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land. I swore uh, to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, did they do anything to, des- to deserve this? Did Israel do anything to deserve that? No, nothing at all. And God, what did God do? He took them out of slavery. They didn't deserve that. He gave them a home. Did they deserve that? No, they didn't deserve that. He set on them his covenantal love, his promised love, a love that will be unfailing, unbreakable, never stopping kind of love. Did they do anything to deserve that? No, nothing. The path of God's love required them, though, to abolish these other loves, these other idols, because those other loves will lead to slavery. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is setting our, our hearts on something else and enslaving ourselves. But they didn't do that. God knew that was going to be best for them, but they still they didn't do that. This is like getting married to someone. When you get married to someone, you expect they're going to be true to you. That's a, a real and good expectation to have. You don't date other people if you're married to somebody. Uh, that's not a radical expectation. Following other gods is straight up, the way the Bible says, prostitution. It's not just flirting with somebody, not just a little kind of like peck on the cheek. It's all the way towards prostitution. And that's what Judges tells us. So the church, you might have heard this in Christian circles, maybe maybe you haven't before. The church is called the bride of Christ. It's how the Bible kind of describes the church in a lot of ways. That means we, as followers of Jesus, are metaphorically married to him. Like that's, that's what it means. Like we as, and not just individually, but as the church together, we get to be married to, have a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus. And that means we should be devoted to him. We can't be devoted to him and devoted to other things. We can't have multiple priorities. Priority, the, the word priority actually first came in the English language. It was singular. It was only until I think like 50 or 60 years ago that priorities became pluralized. Like you really can only have one priority in life and that priority is going to dictate how you live the rest of your lives, the other aspects of your life. But here's the wonderful thing about God's path of peace. If we are devoted to him, that brings new life into all the parts of our lives. If he is our priority, if, he is our, if we are devoted to him, all the other things that we love and enjoy and are involved in, relationships, careers, families, neighbors, you know, hobbies, all of those things get, get imbibed with new life because we have our eyes and our hearts set on the one who gives a life that will never end. Now, here's a really kind of maybe crazy thing we need to wrap our heads around. God actually knows better than us. That sounds, I mean, we might say, especially if you're a Christian, you probably will say, yeah, of course God knows more than me. But how do we live our lives? Do we think we know better? I think mostly, yes, we do. How arrogant we are. All of us. I, I'm included in that. Of course, I think I know better than God. That's horrible. Now, Colin, my five-year-old son, likes to do this thing. If he detects something that either me or Christina have said that isn't quite right. It could just be like a preposition that isn't right. It's not into, it's it's from, or it's not, you know, or it could be like, maybe we said dogs when we should have said dog. Like he loves to correct us. Um, and he can get very specific, right? He can get very specific. Uh, you know, it's, like maybe I said, we're all going to the park when maybe what I should have said is you and me are going to the park. You know, he gets very <laughs> specific. 
Now, or, or you could say, no, um, this is another thing that kind of came up that we had to correct immediately. No, it's not lightsaber. It's lightsaber, dad. And so-and-so from school told me it's a lightsaber, not a lightsaber. And I'm like, if we're going to get any data right, it's going to be about Star Wars. And you're not going to go around telling people it's a lightsaber. I'm sorry. You can't, you're not, you're just not allowed to do that. Now, sometimes he's right. Sometimes, you know, these like little things, oh yeah, you're right. It is dog, not dogs. And Okay, he can be a bit pedantic. He's five. Like, that's totally normal. Um, but sometimes, sometimes his five-year-old brain doesn't have as much information as my 39-year-old brain does. But he thinks he knows right almost all the time, of course, as five-year-olds do. And it's the same with us and God. Only with God, it's not that he sometimes might be right. He's actually always right. It's always right. That's how it is with God. He always knows better. It's the worst, right? That's frustrating. Wouldn't it be great if we could know better and tell God how to live? That would actually end up in chaos. But we that's kind of what we want. But in reality, God knows best. God knows better. To think that we know best without looking to see what he thinks in the word, without speaking to him in prayer, or, or even if we do know that, but, but kind of disregarding it, that's like a five-year-old trying to run the world. Of course it's going to end in chaos. If that's your life, there will be chaos in its wake. That's just how it is. And for all of us, we all have parts of our lives that are like that. All of us do. So Judges teaches us that we don't have what it takes by ourselves. We don't. If we do what's right in our own eyes, it, lends to it descends to chaos quite quickly. When left to our own, we can't help but sabotage ourselves. Our path of disobedience leads to defeat, but God gives us a different way, a better way. God's path leads to peace. So that's a bit of a background. Let's see how that reality that comes from Judges, let's see how that works out with Othniel and Ehud, our two judges here. Kind of weird names. Uh, we're going to come across a lot of weird names in here. Um, and then you'll have some very normal names like Deborah next week. Um, so we have Othniel and Ehud this week. Uh, in Judges, God's people are in difficult places. The reason they're in this difficult spot isn't because of outside forces and they're innocent. It's because of their disobedience. Like They're deserving what's happening to them, the consequences of their own sin. But they cry out to God, and God raises up for them two judges, Othniel and Ehud. So wherever we are, wherever we are, even if we're in like the worst situation that we deserve because we brought it upon ourselves, when we cry out to God, he rescues us. When we cry out to God, he rescues us. Let's start first with, with our boy Othniel. So Othniel, this uh, is in chapter 3. So uh, to God's people, in the oppression they deserved, of course, they cry out to God. God sends a judge, Othniel, to lead them out of their oppression. And in chapter 10 of verse 3, um, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Othniel came upon him. Now, this is something we'll see a lot We'll see a lot of in Judges. Like, what does it mean for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon somebody? Um, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel, this is, when, this is when he becomes a warlord, a judge. Like, it's kind of the Spirit comes upon him, and then that means he becomes the judge that will, will rescue Israel. So, what exactly does this mean? Well, the Spirit of the Lord coming on, on Othniel uh, means... Bruce Walkey, who's a theologian and an author, uh, defines it this way. It means that it, it means an urgent, compulsive, overwhelming force 
empowers him to achieve a God-ordained objective. So an urgent, overwhelming force comes on this guy, Othniel, to empower him to do what God wants to do, rescue Israel, uh, and, and deliver them from their oppression. So God's spirit coming on Othniel um, is a mark of God's grace. This is saying nothing about if Othniel is a good person or not. Is he morally upright or not? Is he spiritually close with God? Like what kind of spirituality does he have? Does he have a strong faith? It's not about Othniel at all, actually. It's about God doing his work through his people. It's about God working through his people to save his people. That's how God works. He works through his people to save his people. That's why the church exists. Now, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon people and judges, uh, because this is going to happen a bunch, there is no presupposition that that judge, that that leader, is is an, an endorsement from God. Like, this is the kind of person we should all be like, which is good because these judges are kind of horrible people mostly. So they're not more, they don't have to be morally upstanding or not. They don't have to have a strong faith with God or not. Um, in fact, to the contrary, God breaking into the Israelites' experience here by sending his spirit seems to focus more on those who aren't morally upstanding. It seems like the God's just choosing people to lead the nation here who aren't good, who don't have a strong faith in God, yet God uses even them to save Israel. So that, the whole point here, so that God, so that the people of God would look to God as the deliverer, as the rescuer, as the good father, as he says he is. So the people are here aren't supposed to venerate these judges and talk about how amazing they are. They're supposed to be in awe of how amazing that God could use someone as horrible as these judges to rescue them. It was always supposed to point back to God. Now, you might have some questions about holy war and killing people. Uh, You probably should have some questions about God's people killing people and God seeming to be okay with that. Like what's what's up with that? Is God picking sides here? Is he like choose a nation and not choose other ones just because where people were born? We don't have time to get into this here, but I will have a separate video um, and we'll share more about talking about it. If you want to hear more about that and you don't get our, that'll come through our email. If you don't get our email list, you can sign up. You can go to redeemermcr.com slash connect card and that will sign you up automatically. You'll get a weekly email. If you find it useful, that's great. That's why we do it. If you don't find it useful, you can always unsubscribe. That's totally fine. No, no, um, we won't hold it against you. So that's Othniel. Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He rescued God's people. Next, we come to Ehud's story, which is uh, a little bit more involved, a little bit more intricate. It's a, a weird one, right? This is a weird story. It's weirder And it's actually a little bit maybe more gross than what the translators kind of gave us here. Basically, um, with 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 Ehud, so he's he's stabbing this like really like overweight guy and um, he's stabbing him through the stomach and he loses the sword in his stomach and he just kind of leaves the sword there. He's like, I'm not reaching in to get that thing. That's gross. So the the sword goes through his belly um, and it, 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 how do I say this? It, It comes out the other end. I'll just leave it there. It's kind of gross. Uh, and this is why the guards thought that the king was using the toilet because he smelled all sorts of really gross things. I'll just leave kind of all that there. This is how judges start, man. Just, just wait until these stories kind of get on. It's going to get weirder and grosser and for me, more awkward. Actually, maybe for you, more awkward as well. Well, when, when, a- when Ehud is victorious, how does he respond? What's his reaction? Verse 28. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 28. 
he says, the Lord has given Moab, your Moab, your enemy into my, into your hands. Talking to the Israelites. The Lord has given Moab, your enemy into your hands. The Lord has done it. Ehud could have been like, man, you should have seen that thing. I put the sword in and just kind of like disappeared. It was crazy. I'm amazing. I'm the rock star you guys need. I should be your king. But he doesn't. He said the victory belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. Leaders are just kind of like middle management when the Lord is involved. Same thing in the church. Any kind of church leader is kind of middle management because Jesus is the one who leads his church. The real power comes from above. And here we see when the Lord is leading his people, even when they don't deserve it, when they cry out to him, there's peace. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 said, uh, that day Moab is made subject to Israel. So this ironic reversal of now those who were oppressed um, are now kind of the oppressors and, and vice versa. And the land had peace for 80 years. The land had peace for 80 years. When we cry out, he delivers us. He delivers us. And the more we align ourselves on his path, as difficult as it might be for us, what we get is his peace. It's what we get. Now, I've been through difficult times myself, um, been with others who've been through difficult times. I've talked with many of you in Redeemer who have been through difficult times and are in those difficult times now. And in all of it, what we have to do is we have to cry out. We have to cry out. When we get into trouble that we've caused ourselves, how do we cry out? How do we do it? We do in one way or another. How do we do that? Maybe we focus kind of merely on ourselves and think others should as well. Maybe we go online and put up some kind of like self-righteous, kind of passive-aggressive kind of thing, which is such a you know good thing to do online. It's what online is kind of made for in some ways. Or maybe we go to our friends and look for compassion. Sometimes maybe we close our hearts off and steal ourselves to put ourselves back together. Now, some of these are okay. Some of them are not. But if we aren't crying out in our trouble, we'll miss his rescue from the trouble. More than that, we'll miss God himself and what he's trying to do in us and through us. Oftentimes when we're in difficult places that we've caused ourselves, our first response is just to get out as quickly as possible. And and that's a good thing. We shouldn't want to stay there. But we don't think to ask, like, God, what are you doing in this? How do I need to, to find you? Like, basically crying out to him, like, won't you help me? I know I messed up. Won't you help me? Instead of just trying to just avoid the pain. Here in Judges, this crying out happens in the midst of complete disobedience. Complete disobedience. In the middle of our sin. This is something that is our fault. When we experience the consequences of sin, like that, that feeling where we know something isn't right, that we try and overlook, it's supposed to make you cry out. It's supposed to be a reason to bring yourself closer to God. Often what happens is instead of crying out to Him, we hide from Him. Hiding from God has never made anything better. That happens in the third chapter of the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3. Hiding from God never makes anything better. It never has. We humans have been doing that from the beginning, and it always, always, always makes things worse. So instead of hiding out, let's cry out to the Father to rescue us. When we're in those periods of disobedience, whether actively disobeying, disobeying or just kind of passively kind of not being involved, that disobedience that we're living in, let's use that as an opportunity to cry out and to find God, find our rescuer, find the one that we all need. So, so know this, you 
wherever you are, whoever is listening to this, this is true for every single person. You are never too far off for God. You're never too far away for God. God is more powerful than any kind of guilt, any kind of shame, anything you've done to others, to yourself, to whatever. God is never too far off. Never. If you're in Redeemer, you are never too far off from God. Never. If you are just watching these videos and maybe you haven't engaged with the church yet, you are never too far off from God. If you think you could never do that church thing or that Christian thing because you just don't know what I've done or you, know, you don't know what I'm like, all the things that I've heard, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not like a super Christian person who never sins, who kind of levitates a little bit, just know all of us, wherever you are, you are never too, off, too far off from God. That is what God is telling us through this story. God is speaking to us today, telling us you're never too far off from him. When you wake up and you're as grumpy as anything, when you've gone shy with God because you haven't given him any time for weeks, when you've slipped up and gone to that website again, when you've drank too much again, when you've been short with your kids or your partner again, you're never too far off. Never in too bad of a state. Talk to him. Cry out to him. But also, you cannot do this by yourself. You need others to help you do this. The story of Judges. God raised up a deliverer. And it wasn't just an individual following that deliverer. It was a people of God together. Crying out to God. You, 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 we can't cry out to God by ourselves and stay there. We have to be part of a family, of a community. That's how God created us to be from the beginning. So if you're part of Redeemer, this is what missional communities are about. This is what core groups are about. Crying out to God, having other people who are going to walk with you because we all need to do it. It's not like you're going to be the one weird, like unique person who needs to cry out to God. Every single person needs to. So we're all in this boat together. And this is what uh, how, how we should organize our groups. And this is how we should organize our Sundays. What we're doing when we sing songs to God is crying out to him, saying we need him. We can't live without him. And we're doing that as a people together, not just individuals. And you might, if you don't have someone that you can share those deeper, more difficult things with, you need to find somebody to do that. If you don't have someone in Redeemer for that, find someone now. And if you're not sure who to talk to, ask me, we can work it out together. We can find a way through this together because God has not left you to figure it out by yourself. Now, if you're not part of our church, we would love for you to get more involved, whatever that next step might be. If you've just been watching these videos or maybe just this one particular video, you can join our email list. If you go to redeemermcr.com slash connect card, that'll um, help you join up and you'll just get an email of like what we're doing for church that week and you can get involved in something. If you have been listening to these and maybe you get an email, it might your next step might be to um, think about joining our missional communities. These are groups that meet throughout the week. They're relationally connected and they encourage us together to do this very thing we're talking about, crying out to God together. Now, it was gracious of God to send these judges to lead his people from captivity to peace. That was very gracious of him to do then. But what Israel really needed was not some kind of charismatic leader that could kill a whole bunch of people. He didn't need some kind of swordsmith that could, you know, stab a king. What Israel really needed, they needed something better than a warlord. They need a king. Someone who not only can lead someone out of a difficult situation, but who can also keep them on the right path. Bruce Walkie, that um, theologian I mentioned earlier, 
again, uh, says this, Israel needs a covenant-keeping king to shepherd them, not spiritually crippled, charismatic warlords. And isn't that the kind of leader that we want to lead ourselves? The kind of leaders we elect are spiritually crippled, charismatic warlords who we are going to rely on to pragmatically get us a better life. There needs to be a better answer to chapter 3, verse 9, that says, But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. They need someone better than Othniel and Ehud, and as good as they were, they need somebody else. We need somebody else. The deliverer they need and we need is the same. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Because of our disobedience, Jesus took our defeat. And really, our ultimate defeat is death. There's no way around it. Jesus took it on. He took on our death, and he put us on the path of peace. That's what Jesus did through his death and his resurrection. It actually did something. It didn't make a possibility if we try hard to get the thing. It made the thing happen. It stole us from death and put us on the path of peace. Now, wherever we cry out, he can rescue us because he did that. Because Jesus died, that means for those who follow him, even when we get the punishments we deserve, just from the natural consequences of our sin, when we cry out to him, he still rescues us. He will always rescue us. Jesus is our deliverer. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he's about. Not your hard work, not being clever, not your career, not your partner, not your family, not your kids, not your good ideas, not your passion, not whatever the thing might be. It's only Jesus can be the deliverer for you. Only Jesus can. And when Jesus saves us, he saves us to his path of peace. He's made himself clear in the Bible. He's made himself really clear in the word. Uh, The more we're on his path, two things. One, we will avoid a sabotage spirituality. We'll avoid everything that we're seeing here in Judges. Secondly, the more we're on his path, we will enjoy more of this world. We avoid sabotage, uh, us sabotaging ourselves, and we enjoy more of the world that we get to live in. That sounds amazing. That sounds like we should all want to do that, all be a part of wanting to do that. If you've never cried out to God before, know this, you do not need to clean yourself up before doing it. You don't need to find the religious or spiritual words or like pray in a certain way and um, just cry out in your pain of trouble. A cry out is not like really well put together all the time. It could just be a big, long, disgusting sounding help. I need help. Rescue me. That's often what a cry out feels like. Wherever you are, God is there with you and he will hear you. If you aren't connected to our church, again, if you go to redeemermcr.com slash connect card, we can help you walk through that process. We would love to be a part of that process with you. If you follow Jesus, this is what it means to be united to him in his death. If you don't follow Jesus yet, this is what it means to be united to Jesus, like what it means to follow him, basically. It's placing everything at the cross of Christ. And, And I mean everything at the cross of Christ. In his death, we put to death all our defeat. He's done it. He's put it to death. And we enter into that. We go into death and we find that Jesus has it. He has us. He, he's in control and coming from death to life means walking in a way that we weren't able to before. We get to be unburdened because Jesus sends his spirit in us. 
not to kind of use us from time to time to help do these kind of particular things like we see in Judges, but come to reside in us and change us. And now we're completely different people. We're able to live in ways we weren't able to live before. We get to be unburdened. Unburdened. We all have burdens, right? But if we follow Jesus, he gets to take it from us. In our circumstances of the present and ultimately in our death and the future, death is not the end. When we cry out, we get to go through that process of dying with Christ and walking with him in our new life. Now, if you have this book, our little judge's book, uh, you'll find at the end of each kind of talk, each little series, there are a set of reflection questions. Um, you can do this either alone or even better in core groups. Or you know, If you're not in a core group, just ask some people from your missional community to, to go through these questions each week. It could just be through WhatsApp, like just going through the questions. Um, here are some, here are those uh, three questions. How does refusing to cry out to God sabotage your relationship with him? How does refusing to cry out to God sabotage your relationship with him? These are big questions, right? We can't just answer it in a second. Secondly, how could crying out to God in your failings benefit that relationship? Thirdly, what might be a small step towards that change? Not just talking about it, but actually going through it and and doing it. And, And not some kind of massive step, but a really small step. What could that be? So with Jesus, even in our disobedience and in our defeat, he takes that from us and allows us to walk on his path of peace. When we cry out to him, he listens and he rescues us. Let me pray.